Thanks for tuning in to Mountain View Fellowship's weekly podcast with lead pastor Don Headley. At MVF, our mandate is pointing people to Jesus by fostering relationships. We know Jesus cared for people and placed a lot of emphasis on relationships. So we do too. We believe that we're created for relationship with God and that he gave each one of us a desire to belong. If you'd like more information about MVF, connect with us at mvfcolorado.com. Now, stay tuned for this week's message. If you have not been with us, we're in a series entitled Marks. We've been working our way through the gospel of Mark. And uh, the challenge has been this. If you are not in the Word of God daily or weekly, we want to encourage you, just start somewhere. And if you don't know where to start, this is an easy series to start in because you can just jump into the chapter that we're going to be teaching each and every week. Today, we're covering Mark chapter 9. So if you grab your Bibles, head over to Mark chapter 9. What that means is if you're not in the Word of God, this week, here's the challenge. Get into Mark chapter 10 and read that. Uh, even one time through, but I, I would like to see you try to read it every day and then be prepared for the message next week. Uh, but today we are in Mark chapter 9, and I want to just point out something to you real quick. The Ask Anything number is up on the screen there, so anytime during this message, if you have a question, you can just text it to that phone number, and if we have some questions at the end of the message, we'll try to get our pastors up here and try to answer some of those before you head out today. Uh, Mark, um, I have to go back and show this to you because we kicked off this entire series talking about the reason why John Mark wrote the book of Mark in the first place, and, and he states it in the very first verse of the very first chapter. He says, this is the good news about Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. So if there's ever a time as you're reading through the book of Mark, you wonder why that story's in there, what is he trying to say? What he's doing is he's trying to show you the good news about Jesus, the fact that he is the Messiah, the Son of God. And so the obvious question is this, do you truly believe that Jesus is the Messiah? the Savior? Do you truly believe that? And not just verbally, but do you believe it in a way that changes who you are? It changes how you live your life, how you, how you spend your resources, how you make decisions, because that's what it should be. Jesus should be the center of our life. We just uh, sang about it. The question is, do we live like that or not. Now, if you are one of those, and I'm guessing that just in the, the numbers in here, we have multiple people who are struggling with that, if we're honest. I don't know. You know, I'm still growing. I'm still learning this. I'm having trouble trusting Jesus. If you're struggling and believing that Jesus is the Savior, this is a great, great series for you. Because the idea behind this whole series is just what we read in Mark chapter 1. To prove to us that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. Now, for the first eight and a half chapters leading up to the middle of last week, we have actually been in the region of Galilee. And last week, right in the middle of chapter 8, it, it finally started to move out of the region of Galilee. We see Jesus take off with his disciples. And, and if you go out and look at the chart out there uh, pinned to the wall in the lobby, it kind of gives you an overview of the book of Mark. What you're going to find out is from the middle of, I'm sorry, middle of chapter 8, about uh, verse 27 through chapters 9 and 10. So this week and next week, what we're doing is Jesus is taking his 12 disciples and he is moving from Galilee and he's going to make his way all the way to Jerusalem for the very last time where he will give his life at the cross. So for the next two weeks, we're on the road, we're moving. And last week, uh, it started off by saying that Jesus and his disciples left Galilee and they went up to the villages near Caesarea Philippi. So they go straight north right off the bat. 
And then here in just a minute, we're going to see them make a, a turn and go up toward a mountain, and then they're going to come back and head down to Jerusalem over today and next week. But the story that Pastor Mike taught on last week was the first story as they begin this, this journey to Jerusalem. They're in Caesarea Philippi, and, and Jesus asked them a question. Who do you people say that I am? And there's all these different answers. They think you're a prophet, maybe Elijah, things like that. And then he flips the question on them and says, who do you say that I am? And that's the question that we said everyone in here has to answer at some time in their own life for themselves. But it's Peter who speaks up and he says, um, you're the Messiah, the Son of God. And he gets it right. And then Jesus goes on to tell them what's about to happen for the first time. He says, here's what's going to happen. We're going to go to Jerusalem. Uh, I'm going to be betrayed. I'm going to give my life. Uh, I'm going to be killed. And then I'm going to rise from the grave. And Peter, after getting the, right, the answer correctly the first time, steps up and stands in the way and says, that will never happen, Jesus. And Jesus rebukes him by saying, get behind me, Satan. If you remember the story, right? And so Jesus rebu rebukes him in that, in that situation. And then at the end of chapter 8, and I have to read this because we're getting to chapter 9. Hopefully you're headed to chapter 9 with us. Uh, but to set it up, I have to tell you kind of his teachings that lead up to this. Because at the end of chapter 8, he says, If any of you wants to be my followers, you must give up your own way, take up your cross, and follow me. He says things like, if you try to hang on to your life, you're going to lose it. But if you give up your life for my sake and for the sake of the, of the good news, you'll save it. Now, and what do you benefit if you gain the whole world but lose your own soul? And he asked the question, is anything worth your soul? If anyone is ashamed of me and my message in, this adulterous and sinful, in these adulterous and sinful days, the Son of Man will be ashamed of this person when he comes before the Father. And that's the teaching that leads us right up to chapter 9. So are you, are you there? Chapter 9? Like two of you. Okay, well, awesome. I can give you more time. Are we good? Okay. So as we kick off chapter 9, here's what it says. Jesus went on to say, so after everything I just told you, he went on to say, I tell you the truth, some standing here right now will not die before they see the kingdom of God arrive in great power. Now, um, years ago, I used to read that, and I would think, well, that's, con that's contradicting itself, because obviously, uh, in my mind, I thought the kingdom of God arriving in great power meant that when Jesus came back for the second time and all those people that were standing there that day when he was talking to them are dead and so that, those don't jive and so there's something wrong with this passage and, and it took me a while to realize that that's not what Jesus was talking about so the question is what is the kingdom of God what is he talking about now he could be talking about several things he could be talking about the cross and resurrection remember I just told you they're headed toward Jerusalem it could be that or it could be what Pastor Mike, uh, Pastor Tim taught us about two weeks ago when we were talking about Pentecost. Because 50 days after Jesus dies and, and he rose from the grave, um, he ascends into heaven. And then there's this thing that call, we call Pentecost where the Holy Spirit comes and is given to the people. Uh, maybe that's what they're talking about with the kingdom of God. Or maybe it's talking about the transfiguration. Uh, what's the transfiguration, you ask? Great question. I'm glad you asked it because it actually shows up in the very next verse, in verse 2. It says, six days later, Jesus took Peter, James, and John and led them up a high mountain to be alone. As the men watched, Jesus' Jesus' appearance was transformed and his clothes became dazzling white, far whiter than any earthly bleach could ever make them. The idea is he begins to shine why is he shining? Because they were seeing some of his, his heavenly glory. 
Uh, it's kind of like Moses' face, if you remember in, in Exodus chapter 34, when Moses would go up and he'd visit with God, and, and he would come down off the mountain, his face would be glowing, and it would freak people out, so they'd have a veil over his face so that he wasn't freaking everybody out. That's kind of what they were talking about, but that was temporary. And in this moment, Jesus is on the top of the mountain with his three disciples, this close-knit group, and he's beginning to show them a little bit of his glory, but it goes on. It says... Um, Actually, this is a fulfillment of prophecy. It says in Deuteronomy chapter 18, Moses continued, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your fellow Israelites. You must listen to him. Now, that last phrase, hang on to that because you're going to see that come up again here in, in Mark chapter 9. But Jesus is standing on top of the mountain, radiating glory. They're, they're seeing it for themselves. And it's fulfillment of this prophecy where Moses is speaking. And speaking of Moses, Moses shows up too. Look at verse 4. Then Elijah and Moses appeared and began talking with Jesus. Peter exclaimed, Rabbi, it's wonderful for us to be here. Let's make three shelters as memorials. One for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He said this, why? Because he really didn't know what else to say. For they were all terrified. And you would be too, if you think about it, right? We'd all be terrified. Jesus takes him up on top of this mountain. He begins uh, to show his glory, and Elijah and Moses show up. And by the way, both of these men came to odd ends, if you, if you think about it. Uh, Moses, it says in Deuteronomy chapter 34, that he was buried by God. Elijah was actually taken up like a, uh, in a whirlwind. He never even really died. Like, God just took him home. Uh, that's in 2 Kings chapter 2. So both these men, are, are they end oddly, and here they are standing on the mountain talking to Jesus while Jesus is showing his glory, and, and Peter is terrified. He doesn't know what to do, and Peter being Peter, who always shoots his mouth off without thinking, which I know none of us do that, right? Um, he says, hey, I got an idea. Let's build three shelters. Some of your translations say tabernacles, and we get this idea that he's talking about these big, massive temples, and that's not what he's talking about at all. If you look at the original text, literally what it means, and if I was going to liken it to something here in eastern Colorado, this is what he says, let's build three lean-tos. That's what he's saying, these small little shelters. Now, uh, there's a major problem with that, because he's essentially putting Elijah and Moses on the same playing field as Jesus. He's missing it all together. And actually, he's essentially making the same mistake he made a week earlier in Caesarea Philippi when he confronted Jesus about the truth that Jesus was speaking, and, and Jesus rebuked him by saying, get behind me, Satan. Well, in this situation, he's making the same mistake, and guess what? Jesus doesn't rebuke him this time. God does. He goes, look at verse 7. Then a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice from the cloud said, this is my dearly loved son. Listen to him. Remember the prophecy that was back in Deuteronomy 18? Listen to him. It also has this feel of the baptism of Jesus as well. Remember when he was being baptized by John the Baptist and, and the Holy Spirit ascends like a dove and a voice from heaven says, this is my son. It has that same feel to it. This transfiguration is the pinnacle of Jesus' earthly ministry. Uh, it's the most significant event between his birth and his death and resurrection. Jesus was never closer to his divinity on earth than in this moment. And Peter, James, and John got to see it. And they say, let's build some lean-tos. They didn't know what else to do. They missed it altogether. That's why I think it's interesting that after the transfiguration, Jesus gives them some instruction. Verse 8, suddenly... 
when they looked around, Moses and Elijah were gone. And they saw only Jesus with them. As they went back down the mountain, he told them not to tell anyone what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept it to themselves, but they often asked each other what he meant by raising from the dead. Now, you guys that have been here for the last several weeks, you've been here for this series, you know the answer to this question. Why would Jesus tell them not to tell anyone? Because it's not his time. Man, you guys are awesome. I love a church that grows and learns. This is so cool. It's not his time. It's not his time. But this is the first time I get to tell you this. It's kind of cool. This will be the final time Jesus will instruct them not to say anything. It's the final time. Uh, But he puts some parameters on it, doesn't he? He says, "Um, don't say anything until the Son of Man has risen from the dead. So after I go, he's not saying this, but they'll get it later. When I go to the cross, I die. They put me in the tomb. Three days later, when I empty out the, the grave, then you can tell them about this. Why? Because then the transfiguration will make a lot more sense. They'll understand it. They would eventually understand it, and it would have a big impact, especially on Peter, because years later, Peter would write in 2 Peter chapter 1, he would say this, for we were not making up clever stories when we told you about the powerful coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. We saw his majestic splendor with our own eyes when he received honor and glory from God the Father. The voice from the majestic glory of God said to him, this is my dearly loved son who brings me great joy. We ourselves heard that voice from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. He remembered it and he understood it, but not until after Jesus went to the cross and rose again. Transfiguration of Jesus Christ. We have Jesus in his glory. He takes three disciples with him. They get to witness it, which means there were nine disciples left behind. And that brings us to the next section, which is verses 14 through 29. And this is where he heals the possessed boy. And if I was preaching this through these two sections, I would call it the divine to the mundane. Because what we find is they come off the mountain where they had this amazing experience and they walk right into the normal mess of life. In verse 14, when they returned, there were these other nine disciples. They're there, and then there's some scribes or these teachers of the law, and uh, there's the crowd gathered around them, and there's this big uproar. There's this chaos happening, and they're all arguing over something. And Jesus says, what are you guys arguing about? And this guy steps forward, and he says, look, I'm a father of a son who uh, is possessed by an evil spirit that won't let him talk. The spirit seizes him, throws him violently to the ground. He foams at the mouth. He grinds his teeth. He becomes rigid, almost like he's dead. And I brought him to your disciples so that they could cast out the spirit, but they haven't been able to do it. And Jesus' response to that is in verse 19. It says, Jesus said to them, you faithless people, how long must I be with you? How long must I put up with you? Bring the boy to me. So they brought the boy, but when the evil spirit saw Jesus, it threw the child into a violent convulsion, and he fell on the ground, writhing and foaming at the mouth. How long has, it been, how long has this been happening? Jesus asked the boy's father. He replied, since he was a little boy, the spirit often throws him into the fire and into water, trying to kill him. Have mercy on us and help us if you can. What do you mean if I can? Jesus asked. Anything is possible if a person believes. The father instantly cried out, I do believe, but help me overcome my unbelief. Now, I just want to stop, push the pause button for a moment, and just recognize how crazy this scene is, all right? 
Um, sometimes we read this stuff and we go, it's Bible. We don't tie it to life, but this is real life. This is what's happening. This father, a concerned father, brings his uh, possessed son to the disciples. The disciples can't cast the spirit out. And so it starts this massive argument between the disciples and the scribes, the teachers of the law, and, and the people are all gathered around because there's chaos happening, and, and you got this kid who apparently is, is possessed by a spirit, and this big argument happening, and Jesus walks right into the middle of it. And he's like, hey, bring the boy to me. They bring the boy to him, and as soon as the spirit sees Jesus, it throws the kid into this, this fit. He's foaming at the mouth. All this stuff is happening. And in the middle of this, Jesus goes, hmm, how long has this been happening? And the father's like, well, it's been happening quite a while. He's a kid and usually throws him in the fire. They're having this conversation, and this kid is convulsing. It's just a crazy scene. And I love it because the father says, if you can, help us. Help us if you can. Now, if, if this was recorded, I would, I would appreciate that. Because when we read it, we don't get the voice inflection. And the voice inflection actually would tell us a lot. Does the father say, if you can? Or does he say, if you can? Is it just faith in general? Like, I don't think this kid can be healed. Or is it, I don't really believe that you are who the people say that you are and that you can do it? Regardless, Jesus' answer is anything is possible if a person believes. And can I just say this? The Father's response is perfect. He says, I do believe, but help me overcome my unbelief. Some of you today, and I know, I know the stories of many of you in this room, are going through stuff today that if the people around you knew what you were dealing with, it would break their heart. Some of you, you're losing hope. You're starting to question whether God knows what's happening in your life, whether he can actually do something about it. And I want you to know the correct answer this morning is this. I believe. Please help me overcome my unbelief. Jesus is the Messiah. He is the Savior. He knows what's going on in your life. Lean into him. Trust him. Confess your unbelief. And watch what Jesus can do. In this moment, in Mark chapter 9, Jesus sees the crowd gathering. They're starting to come out of the market, you know, the marketplace and all these other places, and they're starting to gather. And one of the things that we know about this section of Scripture is that Jesus is taking his disciples. He's moving because he's trying to spend his time with his disciples, not with the crowds. Not because he doesn't like the crowds. It's because he knows his time with the disciples is limited. So he's trying to keep away from the crowds, and he's trying to teach them. So as he sees the crowds all coming out, and this, this gathering is happening, he goes ahead and he heals this kid. He casts the spirit out. But then later on in verse 28, we're told afterward, when Jesus was alone in the house with his disciples, they asked him, why couldn't we cast out that evil spirit? Jesus replied, this kind can be cast out only by prayer. The, those nine disciples that were there, they were trying to cast this spirit. I have to acknowledge that Jesus and Peter and James and John are up on top of the mountain when all this is going on. They're not with them. So the nine disciples are by themselves, and this father brings this, this child, this son who's possessed, and they want to help. 
but they can't cast them out and they can't figure out what's going on here. And Jesus says this kind can be cast out only by prayer. Some of the other stories, it's told in other places in the Gospels, it says by prayer and fasting. So I don't think that their problem was their method. I think it was the littleness of their faith and maybe it was because Jesus wasn't with them. Maybe like what Pastor Tim was talking about earlier, we leak, right? We need a daily filling of God's spirit. But he says this kind can be cast out only by prayer. See, I, I think Jesus may not be directing them so much to pray out the demon. It's not about their method as much as it is the demon, uh, as much as it is they need to pray up themselves or instead of praying out the demon, they need to pray up the disciple. Does that make sense? Like Jesus is saying, you need to pray. Your faith needs to be at its highest in order to cast out a demon like this. Pastor Mike talked about this a few weeks ago, and he said, you know, one of the reasons why we don't see demon possession more in America is because we're asleep spiritually. And Satan knows that if if we start experiencing demon possession and things like that here, that uh, we might wake up to that. But in other areas around the world where, you know, in the economy, the the economy is, is won over by power, you'll see more demon possession. I think the best lie Satan ever told us is that he wasn't real, and we believed it, and therefore we're asleep, or we're fat, dumb, and happy. Um, I have a good friend who um, was a missionary for many, many years in South America, and he knew he was called to be a missionary, and he went to to college to become a missionary, and right out of college, he and another, another classmate of his, they were assigned to a missionary who had been in South America for many years, 30, 40 years. This guy had been down there forever. And they go as interns to serve with this missionary. And he told me this story years later, and it woke me up to this. And he said, we got there fresh out of college, and we're serving alongside this, this seasoned missionary. And these tribal leaders came in, and they said, hey, we got this woman in this hut who, um, you know, we think she's possessed. She says she's a witch. We need you to go talk to her. And so the missionary snagged up his two interns, my friend being one of them, and they hiked off to this hut, and they walked in the hut, and he said this woman was sitting at the table. And so they sat down at the table, and they began to discuss, just talk to her. And he said the problem was that when he was in college, he wasn't living the life that he was supposed to. He was addicted to things. He was, he was hanging on to sin that he should have let go of. And he said... Satan gave this woman information that no one else would have had. And he said, across the table, this woman called him out by name and told him every sin that he had been committing. And he said, I was so demoralized. He said, I ran out of the hut. And he told me, he said, what I learned about that is if you're ever going to engage in spiritual battle, you better make sure you hit your knees and that you confess every sin and that you are prayed up and that you are right with God before you go in on on God's behalf. You better have a pure heart and clean hands before you do anything like this. As disciples, I think many times we fail at spiritual warfare, not because we're unfamiliar with the enemy's tactics, but because we're fat, lazy, and undisciplined. We're asleep, and we need to wake up. In verses 30 through 34, Jesus takes his disciples, and they leave, and they head to Capernaum. As they go, Jesus tells them his plan for the second time, just as plainly as he can say it. He says, look, um, we're going to go to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man is going to be betrayed, and they're going to kill him, and then I'm going to rise from the dead. 
And the disciples, they don't understand what he's talking about. This is the second time. And it says that they're afraid to even ask. And I don't know why. Maybe it's because they go, okay, he's already told us once. He's told us a second time. And I don't want to be that guy that stands out there and goes, hey, I don't understand it. And Jesus rebukes you because you should have gotten it. Like we should have it by now. Or maybe they don't ask and they're afraid to ask because what he's saying doesn't match with their line of who this Messiah should be. Like if he's going to be an earthly, worldly leader, a king, how in the world can he die? That doesn't make any sense. And I hope that's not the case. And so therefore, I'm not going to ask. But after that, they arrive in Capernaum. They go into a house. We assume it's Peter's house. And Jesus asked them as they were walking along the road on the way there, he says, "Um, what were you discussing? He asked the question like he doesn't know the answer already, right? Like he's Jesus. But it says that they won't answer him. Do you know why? Because these disciples on the way to Capernaum were arguing amongst themselves about which one of them was the greatest. Keep in mind, three of them were just up on the mountain with Jesus, and they failed, and God had to rebuke them, and they came down off the mountain. The other nine had failed because they couldn't cast out a spirit, and yet in this moment, they are arguing amongst themselves about who's the greatest. We're awesome, aren't we? I'm glad we don't deal with ego. Egotism has always been a problem. I've heard it said the problem with low self-esteem is not that a person thinks too lowly of himself, but that he thinks of himself too much. I think what Jesus is trying to teach his disciples in this moment is that they need to get their focus off of themselves, that they need to put it on God and others. It's amazing to me. When we do that, how many of our problems are cured, how our outlook is lifted up. And the problem with our society today is everything around us is structured to point us inward, Everything, life is about me and me alone. It's a me culture. And we have the highest suicide rate. We have the highest level of depression. I mean, you name it. Why? Because we're looking in the wrong spot. Jesus is trying to teach them what I would, what I would call the theology of humility. In verse 35, it says, He sat down, called the 12 disciples over to him, and said, Whoever wants to be first must take last place and be the servant of everyone else. Is this countercultural or what? Then he pulled a, a little child among them. He put a little child among them. Taking the child into his arms, he said to them, anyone who welcomes a little child like this one on my behalf welcomes me, and anyone who welcomes me welcomes not only me, but also my Father who sent me. So the theology of humility shows the value of each and every person. God loves us so much that he sent his son to die for us. Isn't that interesting? Like he loved you so much he sent his son. But here's the thing. It's not about you. That's that's that paradox, that switch that has to take place. See, the theology of humility shows the value of each and every person, even the least and the lost. Prostitutes, children, women, crippled leopards, um, tax collectors, Samaritans, foreigners, everyone. Each and every person is valuable to God because we are all his children. We are created in his image. And I can tell you from personal experience, the theology of humility is easy to understand, but it is hard to put into practice. Do you know why? Because we are naturally selfish. We all have a little narcissist living within us. 
And it doesn't take much for us to turn inward and make life all about us. And in this moment, it's interesting that Jesus uses a child as an illustration. And don't, man, don't miss this. Because I, I think we allow the tenderness of the scene to distract us from the severity of the moment. Jesus is warning his 12 disciples, those who should know better, unless they change their attitude, they are going to miss him and they're going to miss God the Father. And the sad part about that is one of them does. Because in a short amount of time, Judas is going to betray him. He's going to turn on him. Jesus continues with his warning in verse 42. He says, but if you cause one of these little ones who trusts in me to fall into sin, it would be better for you to be thrown into the sea with a large millstone hung around your neck. That's from Jesus. When we read that, so often we think about, you know, like a cinder block. We're not talking mafia here, okay? We're talking God. He says a millstone. A millstone is a massive stone that was drug around by a horse or a donkey to crush grain. And he says, tie that around your neck and be thrown into the sea. It's better for that to happen, for you to cause one of these little ones who trust in me to fall into sin. And what he's saying is this big, massive stone, something you can't even imagine of thinking about picking up, tie that around your neck, which means when you're thrown in, you go down fast and you go to the deepest part of the sea. He's talking about death and he's talking about grave here is what he's talking about. Uh, so with that being said, I don't want to get off on a whole other soap, soapbox, but let me just say it this way. Think about what's going on in our culture today with our children but if you cause one of these little ones who trust in me to fall into sin. Do I need to say any more about that? Are we clear? We got that, right? God takes extra care of his little ones. And, and any abuse, and specifically we're talking about child abuse in this one, whether it's verbal, mental, emotional, or sexual, can I just say it this way? God will not tolerate it, period. He sees every bit of it, and we will account for it whether it's in this life or the next. Don't play with this. Jesus said this. I didn't. And he literally will go on to say, there will be hell to pay for anyone who takes part in this. Look at it, verse 43. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better to enter eternal life with only one hand than to go into the unquenchable fires of hell with two hands. If your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better to enter eternal life with only one foot than to be thrown into hell with two feet. If your, if your eye causes you to sin, gouge it out. It's better to enter the kingdom of God with only one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into hell where the maggots never die and the fire never goes out. Now, should we start cutting off body parts? No, that's not what he's saying. He's using hyperbole, hyperbole to, to make a point here, but the caution is this. Don't play with sin. Don't play with it. Don't even think about it. In this moment, Jesus is calling his disciples to radical repentance. That's you and me. Don't play with your sin. Repent. Turn away from it. We, we hold on to our sin and we play with it like it's a pet. And he says, don't. Don't even think about it. Cut it out. Why? Because verse 49, for everyone will be tested with fire. 
See, Jesus knows his time with his disciples is getting short. He's taken three of them to the top of the mountain, and he's shown them his glory. Um, They've seen what the enemy can do through the possessed boy, but they've also seen how God has power over that. Jesus has told them plainly what's going to happen when they get to Jerusalem, the fact that he's going to give his life, that he's going to die, but he's going to rise again. He's teaching them to overcome their unbelief, to pray, and not to play with sin. Why? Because he knows that they're going to be tested with fire. This is for all of his disciples, not just those standing there that day, but you and me as well. This is a lesson for us. Next week, when we get into Mark chapter 10, we're going to cover the last leg of this journey to Jerusalem because he'll enter Jerusalem on Mark, uh, on, in Mark 11. And so we're going to cover this last leg. And I want to show you next week that we're going to discover the two most important things that Jesus wants to teach his disciples before he enters Jerusalem. So I want to make sure that you come back next week for that. All right? Let me pray for us today. Heavenly Father, we thank you and praise you for loving us first. Thank you for sending your son Jesus as the Messiah, our Savior. Jesus, because of your death and resurrection, we have forgiveness of sins and we have eternal life. Thank you for giving us your word so that we might learn more about you and what you desire for us. God, we declare today that we trust you, that we believe in you, but Lord, we also ask that you would help us overcome our unbelief. God, show us your glory. Through the power of your Holy Spirit, help us overcome our sin. Continue to mold us into people who look more and more like you every day. Give us the strength through your Holy Spirit to live life by faith, focused on you and those around us. Use us this week to grow your kingdom and to bring glory and honor to you. It's in the resurrected name of Jesus Christ, our Savior, that we pray all these things and all God's people agreed and said, amen. Amen.